0: Well, we are rapidly approaching the uh, the conclusion of our study in the book of Hebrews. In fact, we've only just got a couple of weeks left. And if you've been with us, uh, there are a lot of threads that are sort of being brought together. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at chapter twelve, where the writer saying, "Hey, keep your eyes on Jesus. Run the race in front of you. Don't let anything tangle you up. And remember that that you've come to this unshakable kingdom. That you have access to the Lord Jesus, who who absolutely is a better mediator, a better high priest. And from that unshakable kingdom, then as we move moving to chapter 13, he gives us some real practical instructions, some practical pictures of what living in an unshakable kingdom looks like. If Jesus is truly this greater high priest, the mediator of a greater covenant, what then can our lives look like? And if you were in the services last week as we studied the beginning of chapter 13, there's some very tangible and practical things that let love for the brethren continue. We should be loving. That seems like a no-brainer, right? And yet sometimes love for other people is difficult. He says we should care for the stranger and welcome in those who are outsiders. He says we should care for those who are in prison and in fact we should love them as if we were in prison with them. I think when we think about prison, you know, we we sometimes think about people behind bars, people literally in jails or in prisons, but I'll tell you there are a lot of people in our community, a lot of people in our families, a lot of people in our neighborhoods, in the places where we work, who are in prison, not behind jail bars, but in, in prisons of all other kinds of shapes and sizes, And the the writer here is saying that if we're in this unshakable kingdom, if we have access to this Jesus, we have to live a life of grace, a life of compassion for those who are tied up, for those who are chained up and burdened, for those who are outsiders and strangers, for the brethren. He says we have to care for those who are mistreated. We have to keep our marriages pure and continue to recognize that there is great value in fidelity, keeping our commitments. To look to our leaders and he says we have the ability, to, the, the ability to be confident and consistent because Jesus is with us in it. But the reality is that living, practically living a life of grace or a life of compassion, a life of empathy, living this unshakable kingdom kind of life is not easy. It's a difficult thing to do. And so now as we continue in chapter 13, the writer is giving us some practical warnings, and I'll tell you this morning, this text is one that we absolutely have to heed. Not that any of them are less so, but in this one, there's some very practical stuff we don't want to miss. Because the writer is saying, hey, love other people, care for the outsider, care for the prisoner, care for the mistreated, keep your marriages pure, but know that there is going to be a a real danger to be led away into diverse and strange teachings. You see, the reality is that living a life of grace is hard on the heart. It takes a strong heart to do that. Because a lot of times when you're caring for strangers or when you're loving people who are otherwise unloved, when you're living this kind of radical life of grace and compassion, you come under a lot of pressure. You come under a lot of heat. It can be very difficult to continue to sustain a life of grace and compassion, even when sometimes that love is unreciprocated. Or sometimes the people that you're showing compassion to, that you're showing grace to, don't appreciate it, or they don't return it. And there can be in us then a tendency to go, why am I doing this? Like, why am I being loving? Why am I being kind? I think of the, you know, the story of uh, Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. You can tell I'm a theater nerd, right? Uh, But there's that whole scene where he goes into the house of the priest, and the priest creates a place for him. They serve him a meal, and he wakes up the next morning, and Jean Valjean has robbed him, right? And the constable brings Jean Valjean back, and he says, you know, this guy robbed you. And the priest says, no, he, he didn't rob me. He forgot to take the candlesticks, right? He takes the candlesticks out of the cabinet. I'm talking about the movie now. He takes them out of the cabinet, and he gives them to him as well. There are all kinds of times when you're trying to live a life of generosity and grace, where your generosity gets trampled and abused. And there can in those moments be a tendency to go, why am I doing, it? why would I continue to do this? It's hard, it's hard to live a life of compassion and kindness and grace. There are lots of places where your heart will become weary, where you'll become fatigued, where you become tired. I was, um, when I was living at Hume Lake, there was a day, we, we, do a, we used to do a conference up there called the Single Parent Family Camp, right, which is all single moms and dads and their kids, and they come up for the weekend. And on a single parent family camp weekend, I was, uh, I was driving to the dining hall. If you've been to Hume Lake, you know that um, there's like this narrow road with the dining hall on one side and literally like the lake on the other side. And so I was driving down to the dining hall to try and find a place to park so I could go in and eat. And there were no parking spaces. So I get up to the end of the road. I turn around and I'm coming back. And as I'm coming back, I've got the dining hall and some of the parking on my left. And I've got the lake on the right. It was kind of grassy area. And uh, all of a sudden as I'm driving, looking for a space, there's this little kid, like maybe two and a half, three years old, just a little guy. And he runs out from between the parked cars, right? And if you've ever had that happen it's like terrifying because you're scared you almost hit a kid or whatever so this kid runs out and he stops and he's just like a little dude so he's like you know whatever and so i stop and my heart's beating fast and whatever and i realized that this little guy was gonna run across the street because all of his like older brothers and sisters or whatever were on this side of the road and so i i sat there for a minute and was like okay right, kid you know do your thing like whatever let's go and uh, he just sat there <laughs> and i'm like come on kid Let, let's move come on let's go because I'm hungry and I'd like to get moving here so come on let's go and the kid just sat there you know he's just kind of looking at me <laughs> and so I you know I rolled down my I was going to do this as a roll down your window but that you guys know I just did me I did that right <laughs> roll down the window and I looked and I said hey all right come on you're good come on let's go and the kid still he just stood there on the left side you know <laughs> looking at me So I lean way out of the car and I'm like, come on, let's go, you can go, let's go. Come on, little guy, you can do it, come on, come on. And right in that moment, the kid's dad, who I hadn't seen before, steps out from between the cars, right? And he didn't see the whole scene. All he see, he looks and all he sees is like a weird mountain guy uh, leaning out of his van and going, come on, little guy, come on. Come on, buddy, you can do it, come on. I got some candy, you know, whatever. He's like, there's like, I know. So he like scoops up his kid and he holds him really close and he gives me this look like, you predator, you know? And, and so I'm like, no, I was trying to, and I realized I wasn't going to be able to reason with him. So I just, mm, I just rolled up the window and drove on, right? I knew I wasn't going to be able to, but I was trying to do something good there, right? I was trying to do something nice. I was waiting for the kid to cross the street. And there are a lot of circumstances in our lives as we're trying to live this life of brotherly love. Of kindness toward the outsider and the stranger, the foreigners. We're trying to be sympathetic and in solidarity with those who are in prison as we're trying to care for those who've been mistreated. There are a lot of moments where there is no immediate payoff for that. And in those moments, there will be a temptation. It's hard to live a life of grace. One of the reasons why it's hard is in those moments, you'll be challenged to quit. And you'll go, is this even making a difference? I'm caring for people but they don't seem to even notice. Nobody knows what I'm doing. I'm giving and giving and giving and they just seem willing to take and take and take. It would be so much easier to just sort of hold on to what's mine and just live a life where I take care of myself. And so sometimes we resort to that, just serving ourselves instead of serving others. It can be easy to go, is this even making a difference? Like, is, am, I do, am I being a good follower of Jesus Or Am I living in the unshakable kingdom? Because it feels like I'm giving, but I don't see any, like, quick results. And so sometimes the temptation for us and the way that our heart starts to get fatigued is that we turn a corner into legalism and self-congratulation and pride because I'll tell you, it's much easier to just sort of create a system of boxes you can check, religious rituals and routines that you can perform and feel good about yourself, At the end of the day, you can go, okay, I read my Bible. Okay, I went to Sunday school. Okay, I talked like a Christian and I didn't see any dirty movies or whatever. And we just kinda, we get to a place where we fall into this system of doing works. And then at the end of the day, unlike living a life of grace and living a life of compassion, at the end of the day, you can go, well, did I read my Bible? Did I not smoke any cigarettes? Did I do these things? Yeah, then I'm I'm a good guy. But that isn't what we're called to either. There is sometimes this this tendency for us to fall into legalism or to fall into a life that is not a life of grace, but into a life of just religiosity, religious performance, a works-based kind of religion. And one of the reasons why we fall into that is that we can congratulate ourselves more easily. Not only can we congratulate ourselves more easily, but then in that context it becomes much easier to lord it over others, doesn't it? Because as soon as I start checking boxes, not living a life of compassion and grace, but looking at myself and going, you know what? I'm a pretty good Christian because I've memorized a lot of Bible verses. I'm a pretty good Christian because I go to church regularly. I'm a pretty good Christian because I do this and I do this and I do this. Then the next pivot point or the next logical iteration of that is that we start to look at other people and go, you know what? I don't see these other people doing all the Christian-y things that I do. I don't see them being involved in as many home Bible studies as I'm in. I don't see them memorizing as many verses. And then it turns into not only self-congratulation, but it turns into public pride. And it turns into a judgment of other people. It turns into legalism then where we're looking at others going, you know, what you sh- if you wanna be a good Christian, you know what you should do? Be more like me. Do more Bible studies like me. Post more spiritual-sounding Instagram posts like I do, Right? <laughs> And all of a sudden, our faith that's supposed to be rooted in compassion and love and grace becomes just a system of performance by which we can pat our own selves on the back and we can judge other people. And I'll tell you, the greatest sort of oppression that comes to a heart that's trying to live a life of compassion and generosity and grace, the greatest attack that comes is not the internal attack, and it's not from those we're trying to show compassion to. The greatest attack typically that comes to people who are trying to live a life of grace and sacrifice and love, the greatest attack typically comes from inside the church, because you get people inside the church who will look at you when you're trying to live a life of sacrifice, and they'll go, wait a second, you're you're actually trying to do that Acts 2 thing where you share all things in common, and you give to others in need as anybody has a, a necessity, you're actually giving your stuff away, you're actually giving up your time, you're not holding on to things like, you don't want to live like that, right, and we start to have these voices in our ears, these voices that are telling us that we shouldn't live a life of compassion. And the reason they're telling us that is that they don't want to live a life of compassion, they don't want to live a life of grace, they don't want to live a life of mercy, and they don't want to have to feel bad when they look at you and I living a life of compassion. And so then they pressure us to walk away from that. Sometimes the greatest attack we receive when we're trying to live a life like Christ is from people inside who should also be trying to live a life of Christ, like Christ, but they don't wanna do it, and so they subvert us. The writer here says, in the beginning of chapter 13, love one another, care for the stranger, be in prison with those who are imprisoned, care for the mistreated, keep your marriages pure, look to your leaders, have confidence in the presence of Christ. He says, but be careful here in verse nine. Be careful and be alert, be on guard, because there are these diverse and strange teachings. Look at Hebrews 13, chapter, chapter 13, verse nine. He says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. He says, in this pursuit of love and compassion, your heart's gonna get weary, you're gonna get tired, you're gonna become fatigued, and there is only one thing that can strengthen your heart in that moment. There's only one thing that can establish or the word could be translated stabilize your heart in that moment and it's not more of your effort. It's not more religious routine. It's not more ritual. It's not more works. The only thing that can establish, can secure and strengthen your heart in the moment where you're tempted to stop living a life of compassion is the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ is what strengthens your heart. It says in uh, in 2 Timothy chapter one verse eight, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own power and grace which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher an apostle and teacher Which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you guard the good deposit you know it's interesting in the book of hebrews there have been several warnings warnings for us to be careful not to drift away not to sort of drift away from christ who is our anchor to take our eyes off of christ what he's warning us here is not about a drifting it's not about a fading it's about being led away do not be led away do not be carried away by diverse and strange teachings and you go well what are these how do we know them when we see them How do we know the diverse and strange teachings? What what is that? Well, in this particular case, it's a requirement about food. And it's interesting here because the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, doesn't give us a ton of information about this particular deal. He says, the grace of God strengthens your heart, unlike food, which does nothing for those who, who ascribe to it, right? He's talking about a food issue, and there are all kinds of food issues mentioned in the scripture. But I'll tell you, I think it's on purpose that we don't get a lot of detail here. Because the food issue is indicative of a much bigger issue that happens in a lot of different contexts. Apparently what's happening here is that there are people who were looking at the church that this letter was written to and they were saying, hey, you've gotta follow a strict diet. Yeah, yeah, the grace of God is good. Yeah, yeah, the sacrifice of Jesus is meaningful and all that, but also you have to do this. You have to adhere to a diet. You have to, you eat these particular foods. And they were calling the people to live this life of legalism as a way to add something to the gospel. So when you and I are trying to determine well what are the diverse and strange teachings that can lead us away or that are a threat to lead us away from the truth? Those diverse and strange teachings all fall into one category. Diverse and strange teachings are any teachings that either take away from or add anything to the all-sufficient completed work of Christ on the cross. Anybody, at any time, in any place who says, Jesus and this is what you need, or Jesus minus this is what you need, is someone who's teaching you something diverse and strange. And I'll tell you, our world is saturated with those. The internet has not done us any favors because you can't turn left or right. You can't spin in a circle without bumping into some sort of weird teaching, some sort of thing that wants to add to the work of Christ or take away from it. He says here in verse nine, he says, Be careful. Hebrews chapter 13, he says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. I think sometimes when we get fatigued, sometimes when we get tired, when our hearts become weary, we're looking for other things to make us feel better about ourselves. And again, being able to check all the boxes at the end of the night, being able to look at other Christians and go, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. Or at least I know more Bible verses than they do. Or at least I go on more missions trips than they do. Being able to check those works-related boxes make us feel better, but they don't ultimately do anything for our heart. If you've been in that process of trying to strengthen your heart through your own works and your own efforts, how tired are you, right? Because those things don't work. You're never giving enough. You're never doing enough. You're never eating in adherence to the law or the rule or the diet well enough. And it just leaves you more fatigued. If you fall and if you follow away, into these diverse and strange teachings that want to add or subtract something from the sufficient grace of Christ, you're going to find your heart still weary and your heart still tired because if it's about your effort and your ability to do religion, you won't ever be able to do it good enough. It's only the grace of God. It's only the grace of God that is good for the heart that sets you free from the need to perform, from the need to judge, from the need to lord it over other people. It's only the grace of God that strengthens the heart in those moments where you're tempted to stop showing compassion, or stop showing kindness, or stop showing generosity. Only the grace of God will fortify your heart in those moments, your efforts won't do it. The writer here says, be careful that you don't be led away. I think of what Jesus says in Matthew, chapter 24, verses four and five. He says, see to it that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Jesus warns us. In this text, we're talking specifically about food thing, but the details are unimportant. Anything that replaces or tries to add to the finished, completed work of Christ is a lure away. The security of self-confidence in my doing. I wonder this morning if you find yourself tempted to find your security in your own effort. Because if you're tempted to find your security in your own efforts, your ability to adhere to a diet or adhere to some sort of external religion or look a certain way or talk a certain way or post certain kinds of things online, you won't be able to sustain it. And you're probably feeling exhausted today. Your heart feels more tired. Paul says in several different places, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse eight, he says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Right? The stuff we add doesn't get us any closer to God, and it doesn't take us away from God because we were never in a relationship with God because of what we ate in the first place. We were never loved by God because of our efforts in the first place, so our efforts don't contribute anything. Colossians chapter 2 verse 20 says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This stuff that people tell you you have to add, or the things they tell you you have to take away, they don't do anything for your heart. And if you're trying to live a life of compassion, if you're trying to live this life in the unshakable kingdom, your heart is gonna get tired. So how do you strengthen your heart? How do you fortify it? How do you establish it? That that word, it's translated establish in some of your translations. It reminds me of Ephesians 3, right? Where it says that Christ will settle down and be at home in us, that he'll dwell in us, and that then we would be rooted and established in his love, that together with the saints we'll grasp the height and width and length and depth of the unknowable love of Christ. The word translated established here in Hebrews is not the same word that we see in Ephesians 3, but it's the same idea. It's the, the idea of stability. It's the idea of security and strengthening. And that only happens when we bathe in the grace of God, not in the diverse and strange teachings that wanna tell us we gotta do more or do less or do things different. When our hearts get tired, grace is the only solution. I read this week a a quote from A.W. Pink, who's a theologian uh, that's no longer alive, but I wanna read it to you, and in fact, I think we'll put it on the screens. Think about what he's saying here. He says, it is one of the marks of the fall that man is fonder of that which is material in religion than he is of what is spiritual. He is most prone, as history universally and sadly shows, to concentrate on trivialities rather than upon essentials. He is more concerned about the details of ordinances than he is of getting his heart established with grace. He will lend a readier ear to novel doctrines than to a solid exposition of the fundamentals of the faith. He will contend zealously for things which contribute nothing to his salvation nor conduce an iota unto true holiness. I wonder how much time we're spending pursuing trivialities. I understand that our hearts tend to rest more easily in the material things of faith than the spiritual things. But ultimately what we're after here is not the material stuff. It's not what we do or how things look. And that's why verse 10 then goes on to say we have an altar and those who continue to serve in the tent can't taste what's served there. What's he talking about? Well, there would have been a criticism to the original church that this letter was written in that the Hebrew people in their culture and in their community, their friends and family who were not followers of Jesus would have been looking at them and saying, what is this Christianity thing? You don't, you don't have you know, the priesthood, you don't have the altars, you don't have the tabernacle, you don't have the synagogue, you don't have the, the priestly vestments, you don't have the smoke and the bells and the whistles and all the, you know, whatever. Like what kind of a religion is this? It doesn't have any of the stuff. Where's all your stuff? Where's your altars? Where's your special diets? Where's all the stuff you're supposed to do? This can't, what is this Christianity thing? Where's your altar? And so in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10, in response to the same kind of mentality, Hebrews 13 says in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What's our altar? You look here this morning, we don't have an altar in this place. But we have an altar. Our altar is the cross of Christ, upon which he was sacrificed for the sins of the world. And there is no other altar necessary. We don't need one in this room because we have one. And what is served from that altar is a feast of grace. And yet those who continue to plug away inside religion, he says those who are serving in the tent, those who are still plugging away inside the rules and regulations of the tabernacle, they don't get to taste this feast of grace because they're still counting in their own efforts. They're counting in their ceremonies and their rituals. They're counting in their confidence in their own doing. And so the grace of God is available, but they don't get to taste it because they're not hungry for it. They're satisfied in themselves. He says, if people look at us and say, where's all this stuff? And I'll tell you, people certainly look at me and say, where's all the stuff? There's stuff we wanna see. There's things you should be doing. There's things we'd like to see on the walls and there's things we'd like to see here and there. Where's all the stuff? Where's the whistles and the bells? It's funny, I, uh, I got to meet with a couple this week um, that's getting married later in the summer. Um, I, I only do a few wedding ceremonies a year, but anytime I have a couple that asks me if I'll perform a wedding ceremony, I always meet with them first just to kind of get a sense of like whether or not their relationship is a train wreck. You know what I'm saying? So uh, I, uh, this particular couple was great, but I was reminded again as we had dinner with them this week, there's so much pressure now for young people, right? Because of Instagram and because of Facebook and because of Pinterest, there is so much pressure to have a spectacular, you got to have a spectacular venue, and you got to have the most beautiful flowers, and your cake has to be made by an artist in Paris, and you got to have little things to give away to people, and you, gotta, and you have to be able to post all of that on Instagram and make sure it's all photographed spectacularly so that you can compete with all of your friends' weddings. And there's so much pressure for people to get all those little things right, to have it all be the best and to have it look better than anybody else, to be innovative and amazing with all the little outside things. And I wanna look at these couples, and I did look at this couple this week, and I said, hey, don't worry about that stuff. What, What is it a wedding is? What is that? It's two people committing their lives to one another before God, as a picture of the love that Christ has for his church. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how the cake tastes, it doesn't matter how the flowers look, it doesn't matter whether you're inside or outside, it doesn't matter whether you're in a tuxedo, or flip flops, Or none of that stuff matters. Reject the people on the outside who will say the stuff is more important than, than, the, than the actual, you know, the, the meaning. What matters is what you're doing, not the way it looks. And young people kind of get that, but they still feel the pressure. And they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on weddings because there is all this external pressure to have the look and the feel and all the stuff. Can I tell you that's exactly like church? I can't, I can't tell you how often I have to have conversations with people about the kind of cur- cake we're serving or about the kind of flowers we have or about the kind of music that's going to be played before the ceremony. And I'm not talking about weddings, I'm talking about in this place there are so many people who are wrapped up in the stuff, the altars, and the rituals, and the ceremonies, and has to look a certain way, but what that, what that misses is that we have an altar, and it's Christ. I reject the pressure to, you know, feel like we have to compete with other churches, or to feel like we have to compete with other people, or to feel like we have to compete with religiosity, or Pharisees, or anybody who would say that this, what we're doing here, is anything other than a pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ, and only that. That's all we're doing. And anything we do in this place that actually leads us further away from a clear view of Christ, we should stop doing immediately. The moment that our preoccupation with the stuff, with the whistles and the bells and the programs and the decorations and the music and the whatever else, the moment that those things become a hindrance to our view of Christ is the moment that those things need to go. That's not what we're doing. None of those things will strengthen our heart to live lives of compassion and service and character. None of those things will make us more like Jesus. It's only his grace that will fortify and strengthen our hearts when we're trying to live the life he's called us to. And yes, it'll make us seem like outsiders. You might worry. If, you, if, Let's say that you decided to do your wedding and you decide not to worry about the venue or the cake or the flowers, that you didn't worry about posting anything on Pinterest, you would feel like an outsider. Great! You'll still be married. I think sometimes there's this tendency for us in churches, to feel like we don't want to be outsiders. We want to have this really cool little club. And so the writer goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 13, he says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. He's talking about the sacrifice on the day of atonement. In Leviticus 16, you're welcome to read that in your free time if you'd like. In Leviticus 16, it talks about the day of atonement. Every other animal sacrifice that the priest made, they were allowed to eat the meat, right? So there was a sacrifice that was made, but they were allowed to receive nourishment from the meat that was cooked. But on the day of atonement, according to Leviticus 16, that atonement sacrifice was taken outside the city and it was burned to ash. Why was it burned to ash? It was burned to ash so that there was no residual benefit for anybody other than grace. Right, the priest didn't get to eat that meal. He didn't get to eat that bull or that lamb that was sacrificed. There was nothing else. The only byproduct of that sacrifice was the grace and forgiveness of God. In the same way, he says, like the Levitical atonement offering, Jesus was taken outside and burned. There is no other benefit of following Christ, of the sacrifice of Christ. There is no other byproduct than the grace of Jesus, rescuing us from our sin. There's nothing else that needs to be done. There's nothing else that needs to be consumed. There is nothing else that you need to do. There's no more doing required. The receipt of it is just his grace just his love, the forgiveness that comes through his sacrifice and his shed blood on our behalf. He says, just like the sacrifice was taken outside the city and burned to ash, so Jesus, back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. What's he talking about? He says, look, Jesus, Jesus didn't die inside the temple. He didn't die inside the religious system. He didn't die according to all the rules and regulations that the human beings had set up to lord it over other people. You know where Jesus died? On a hill outside of the holy city. He was outside the camp. Sometimes when we're fearful and we want to fall into the legalism and the pride and the self-congratulation, when we fall into the rules and regulations and the sort of self-contentedness of the doing of Christianity instead of allowing our hearts to be bathed in grace, sometimes in those moments we, we fear being an outsider. Everybody else is doing the religious deeds. Everybody else is posting spiritual stuff on Instagram. Everybody else is parenting their kids like this and like that. And I have to keep up the image. And so the writer then looks at us and says, "Look, Jesus himself was not sacrificed on the inside. He was sacrificed outside. And if we want to have a part in what he's doing, guess what we've got to do. We've got to go outside to where He is. Jesus wasn't an insider. Why are we so worried about being insiders? We're supposed to be living like Christ for the glory of God. Why are we so worried with keeping up appearances with other people? Why are we led so easily astray by diverse and strange teachings that tell us eat this or don't eat that, sing this, dress this way, go here, don't go there? Why are we led astray? It's because we wanna be inside. We wanna be acceptable inside. But the sacrifice of Christ did not happen inside the city. It happened outside. He says, so let us what? Verse 14, excuse me, 13. Let us go to him outside the camp. And you know what'll happen if we go to Jesus? That's where he is, by the way, he's outside. If we go to him outside the camp, you know what'll happen? We'll have to bear the same kind of reproach that he bore. And that's what we were trying to avoid by living up to all the legalistic rules in the first place. But it's outside the camp with Christ that we take on the same reproach he bore. It says in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It says in Matthew chapter five, this is Jesus himself speaking, in Matthew chapter five, verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When these diverse and strange teachers want to lead you away, when they want to look at you and say, oh... You're not, you're not eating the diet you're supposed to eat. Oh, you're not following the Bible reading plan you're supposed to follow. Oh, you're not part of a small group like Christians are supposed to be part. Of. Oh, you, whatever the thing is, when they're tempted to lead you astray and you face the reproach of being outside for wanting to be fully and wholly dependent upon the grace of Jesus and nothing else, when you're on the outside of those accusations, remember Jesus himself was on the outside. That's the very same thing that the Pharisees said to him. Why are you eating with these sinners and tax collectors? Why aren't you you honoring the Sabbath the way you're supposed to honor it? Why are you telling this man his sins are forgiven? Why this? Why that? They were constantly trying to lead him astray with diverse and strange teachings that had to do with works, not with the grace of God. He says here, Let's go to Jesus outside. Let's go to Jesus outside and bear up under the same reproach that he faced. Back to Hebrews 13, verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You see, the text says again and again that for those who are just trying to adhere to a diet, there is no benefit. Those who are eating the right food, trying to gain something, there's no benefit for them. In fact, it leaves them empty. There is no benefit They don't have the opportunity, if they're serving in the tabernacle, if they're serving in the tent, they don't have the opportunity to feast on the grace of Jesus because they're trying to satisfy themselves with things that won't satisfy. It leaves them unsatisfied. It leaves them famished. It leaves them inside but alone. And so there's a call for us to look beyond the material to the eternal. We've seen the writer point us to that before. And the way in which he does this too is also then to push us back to our leaders, right? I I love the fact that in seven, if you go back to Hebrews 13, seven, he says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You see, instead of being led astray by these diverse and strange teachings, he says, consider your leaders. Take a second and think about the leaders in the faith that you've known. Those who spoke the word of God to you. I took some time this week and thought about the leaders in my life who spoke the word of God to me. I thought about the outcome of their life and the, what it would look like to imitate their faith. I was thinking this week of a, a, one of my Awana leaders and I was in third grade, his name is Dean. I don't even know where Dean is anymore, right? I don't know what he's doing now. I think he was a, like a plumber. And uh, every Wednesday night, he would come to our church in Arizona and he would, um, he would lure me with candy to memorize Bible verses, right? But I'll tell you what, this morning, I I, I know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 by heart in the King James Version because of this guy, Dean. He spoke the word of God to me. I think about my eighth grade teacher. The year my dad left, right, between seventh and eighth grade, my dad was gone, my life was absolutely chaos. My eighth grade homeroom teacher was a guy named Mr. Garman. He's with Jesus now. He only had one arm. I'll tell you that story some other time. Um, Mr. Garman was a man who spoke God's word to me. He he was a man whose faith was very clear, and I was thinking this week about the outcome of their lives. It doesn't say imitate their life. It doesn't say do life the way they did it. It says think about the outcome of their life. Well, when I think about Dean, my Awana leader, I think about, when I think about Mr. Garman, my eighth grade homeroom teacher, when I think about the outcome of their life, well, uh, there's only two things I'm confident of. The two things I'm confident of with regard to the outcome of their life, I'm confident that God was glorified in them. I know for a fact that he was. God's glory is one of the outcomes of their lives. The only other thing I'm super confident of with regard to the outcome of their life, you're looking at it. It's me. I'm here doing this thing today, holding up God's word in front of other people because there's a plumber named Dean who who offered me candy. What's the outcome of their life? Faithful disciples that follow Jesus who are bathing in his grace Rather than the diverse and strange teachings that come along. What's the outcome of Mr. Garman's life? I'm sure there are probably a lot of things, but what I can say for sure is that God was glorified and disciples were made. And I know that because I love God's word and I love the Lord Jesus. That's the outcome of his life. So how do I imitate his faith? I don't have to copy his life because my life's not the same as his. How do I imitate his faith? by remembering that in this world of diverse and strange teaching, so much is changing, everything's, it feels like everything's unstable, right? Everything's changing, we don't know what's going on half the time. The writer reminds us in verse 8. He says, consider your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. And then he says in verse 8, for Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no diversity in teaching. There's no wandering in in, in the character of Christ. It doesn't matter what comes culturally. It doesn't matter what happens in the political arena. It doesn't matter what volcanoes go off or what missiles fly or what wars stop or what wars start. Jesus is the only thing that is consistent that I could put my faith in, that my grandfather put his faith in and that I put my faith in this morning and that my great-grandchildren can put their faith in and it will be the same thing because he is true. So when your heart feels weary trying to live a life of compassion, when your heart feels weary trying to live a life of grace, don't try and fortify yourself with a special diet or religious activity or with looking down on other people and condescension, legalism and pride. Don't try and fortify your heart with those things. They will not strengthen you. There is only one good way to strengthen your heart and it is to be strengthened in the unequivocal and absolute finished grace of Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we we have to be a church whose hearts are strengthened in grace, whose hearts are established and fortified in your grace, not in altars, not in decorations, not in programs, not in routines, not in rituals. We don't wanna be about the cake and the flowers. We wanna be about the truth. And so God, help us not to be carried away by anyone who would want to add or subtract from your completed work. Help us to remember that we have an altar and that it is your cross and that you give us your grace to strengthen our hearts. Help us to come to you outside the city and to be comfortable bearing the same reproach you bore because we know this city is not the city we're looking for. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.